1: And welcome to Ladies Who London Podcast. I'm Emily Dell. And I'm Alex Lacey and we're Qualified London Blue Badge Tourist Guides. Each week we bring to you some of the best bits of London. We talk about our favourite people, places and events with a bit of information, a lot of laughs and a whole lot of fun. We can be found on Instagram at Ladies Who London Podcast and on our website, skydemily.com. And AlexLacey.com as well. Uh, oh, hang on. Uh, oh, as well as no. Yes. As well as our other dedicated... Our dedicated website, London.com. It's been a long week. Um, for more information about us and the podcast. Uh, yeah. Goodness me. We're you definitely go wrong more weeks. times than I do. Yeah, all right. Rub it in. Rub it in. <laughs> <laughs> How
0: are you, Ms. Emily Dell? I'm feeling good. I've just had bangers and mash for dinner.
1: Uh, with the accent?
0: with the accent on the side <laughs> oh yeah feeling full um yeah a little takeaway bangers and mash this is this is breaking news right here yeah yeah i know um but no i'm fine Cute. i've been working a lot Fabulous. i've been doing some extra days over the past couple of weeks so i'm a little bit uh a little bit frazzled <laughs> um but i don't know i think you can also get quite a lot of energy from working, so I'm I'm feeling good.
1: Good, yeah. Good. How are you? I'm very well. I went away for the weekend. <gasps> uh,
0: ukulele in,
1: yeah, ukulele in down to Bogner Regis of all places. Um, I don't. I've probably spoken about this on the podcast before, but during uh, lockdown, I I started playing. Well, I already played ukulele, but I was playing online with on Zoom every night with a, a whole group of people. And we're all now kinda of good buddies and so we all met up in Bognor and there was a folk festival on there. So we did a couple of performances and we all had a lovely meetup and it was absolutely wonderful and it's given me such and then I went to I went to it's given me such a sort of kind of I don't know, like energy. And then I our normal weekly ukulele meetup is on a Wednesday uh, a Monday night, so I went last night as well. And my fingers today are so tender. <laughs> of really? just played you non-stop for like four days <laughs> oh
0: my god well i saw the post and it just looks so idyllic like oh, you're in a so in lovely. like um like a tent weren't you
1: just yeah just we we're just a whole away. load of us um we we're called the pandemic pluckers and oh love that and we're such like complete random mishmash of people all very different from all over the place, not just in the UK. And it was just, it's just so joyous. It's just such mm. a joyous thing. So, yeah, it was a it was real restorative. And I swam in the sea twice, so I'm very happy. Oh, yes. A weekend of uking and swimming in the sea. Happy days. Oh, sounds so nice. Yeah. Well, we have a special guest this week, uh, just at the start of the podcast. The, the main bit will, will come in a little bit. But um, when we had the Queen's funeral, uh, which was just over a week ago now, one of the things I did was on my Instagram was just talked a bit about because you know my dad was working it and he was on the telly and things went a bit bonkers so we thought it might be quite nice to get my dad onto uh, the podcast to have a little bit of a chat about his role and what it was like Uh, so please welcome my dad Yeah, (laughs) the best guest we've had so far (laughs) welcome Richard Lacey thank you um, and we should actually say uh, that my dad was very instrumental when we started the podcast because uh, we started during COVID and neither of us had any money and dad paid for our first year of hosting. You so did. So he's uh, officially a podcast friend. Yeah, <laughs> you're the only reason why we're here. Yes.
2: I've got a lot to answer for Then You, you,
1: <laughs> you have. do, you do. Um, so we've had tons of questions coming in from people about your role and what it is that you do. And a lot of them are general questions about, you know what why were you, why were you why were you there um and also you know what your role is and everything so can you just explain a little bit about uh, your role why you were working at the funeral and what your role entails and how you got it
2: okay um my my official appointment is as a gentleman usher formerly to the queen now to the king um there are a small number of us there are 10 of us in total uh, we're all ex-military um relatively senior and our role is to uh, fulfil a variety of functions in different events. For example, we do uh, what, most of what we do is investitures when people come along to get their OBEs and their MBEs. We have a part ceremonial, part functional role. We play a role in the garden parties. Um, we are required to go out and find interesting people to uh, present to the royal um, oh. persons on duty on that oh particular day. Um, and we also take uh, take part in events alike the funeral, possibly the forthcoming coronation, uh, weddings, that sort of thing. Um, and our role really is, is to help to look after uh, many of the senior guests, including members of the royal family. So that's basically what we do. We look after them, we get them in the right place at the right time in the right seats and then hopefully out in the right order afterwards. Uh, so it's part ceremonial, part functional.
1: Interesting. And so you, you said about the right seats. Now, one of the questions that has come up probably more than any other um, is how was it decided where Joe Biden sat or where all the heads of state sat? Because one of the things that, that we mentioned is that you were the guy who who took Joe Biden in. And so your picture was on a lot of the, the papers and things like that. But how was it decided where he sat? Um, what... It wasn't your decision, obviously. It wasn't the thing of, oh, I'll just chuck him over there. How did that, how was was that all worked out?
2: I believe that it was on uh, a purely alphabetical basis. Um, I can't be absolutely certain about that because I was not involved in the seating plan. Uh, I just had to help deliver it on the day. Um, it was actually the Foreign and Commonwealth Office who seated the individuals on the day. But I do know, uh, having looked at the seating and the labels on the seats, that uh, the um, overseas governments, uh, foreign governments, were seated in alphabetical order. So, uh, by country Mr. Biden, name, he, right? Pardon?
1: By country name, not by person. By,
2: sorry, by country name, yes. So uh, if, if Mr Biden had been from America, he'd have been at the front. But as he was the United States, he was towards the back.
0: Gosh, you're very cool all about this, Richard. You know, this is just... Uh, I, I'm i fascinated by, I mean, I know we're touching upon the funeral, of course, but you are responsible for picking interesting people to be at the garden parties.
2: Not not actually at the garden parties, but when people turn up for the garden parties and, and to uh, to get to a garden party, you usually have to have done something special and been selected by um, the Lord Lord Lieutenant of, uh, of your county. Our role is actually to go out amongst the people who are there and to chat with people and find out a little bit about their background and find out if they would like to be presented to one of the uh, the royal persons on duty.
0: Gosh, absolutely
2: wonderful.
0: Alex, are you constantly asking? your dad all sorts of questions have you asked these kind of questions to your dad before
1: yeah i have i have asked them um and i think the one i ask most dad isn't it that um you know when you say oh i met somebody today is is oh you know i say oh who have you met when you've been up to the palace or what were they like um and we have had a question from somebody who said which um which high profile figure has exceeded your expectations somebody else asked about who's the kind of the best or 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 best person you met or that you've enjoyed meeting the most, because you've met—I mean, it's a bit of a who's who. Whenever they come for investitures and and you know all that sort of thing, you you often get to meet them, don't you?
2: I've met a uh, quite a, a variety of uh, people, very briefly, as they come up uh, to to get their awards at investitures. Uh, I have to say, uh, Selene Henry was probably one of my favourites. Uh, <laughs> he was absolutely fizzing on the day. He was. Oh. He just couldn't contain his excitement. Um, but, uh, yes, I'm, I'm fortunate to have met, uh, met a variety of, uh, of different people. Um, uh, but Lenny Henry is, is probably the one that, that uh, sticks in my memory most. Mm.
0: And we've had quite a few questions on our Instagram. A lot of it, well, a lot to do with your conversation with Joe Biden. I don't know if you're <laughs> able to say much, but... Um... How was it talking to him? I mean, I don't know how to put that into a proper question, really. How was the conversation?
2: Uh, it was very easy. I mean, he was very pleasant. Um, he turned up at a point where one of the processions had just started. So I had to ask him just to uh, to wait a few moments and, until the way was clear. Um, and I had the opportunity to just talk to him about what he was seeing in the present the procession in front of him. Um, because it was the um, orders of chivalry were going in and mm. uh, just as we started four holders of the Victoria Cross and a number of uh, holders of the George Cross went past and we talked briefly about uh, the American equivalent, the um, Congressional Medal of Honor. Um, right. So uh, we, we had a bit of a conversation about that and then about the, um, the abbey itself as, as I was leading him up the aisle just pointed out one or two of the features in there because i I don't think he'd been to westminster abbey before so emily Um,
1: what what dad's saying is that he guided in the abbey yes without holding the blue badge and that's an arrestable (laughs) offence. well yeah that's
0: that's illegal actually richard i hope that you weren't blocking any of the uh the aisles at all
2: (laughs) well everything i told him i learned from alex
0: yeah (laughs) gosh um and so we've had another question um what um so or could you explain how a little bit more about how you got your role
2: um completely out of the blue because we're all um ex-military um as gentlemen ushers uh normally we serve till the age of 70 and then our parents service so in my case um the royal air force will find a replacement for me. Uh, and that process is probably going on because I finish in December next year. Um, and they will offer the palace probably two or three uh, potential candidates. Um, those candidates will be interviewed uh, at the palace at a couple of levels. And one of the uh, people offered will be offered the opportunity to take the job on. Uh, so that's how it works. So each, each service replaces its own. There are three three naval, three RAF, and four army uh, ushers. So each service replaces its own by whatever means it uh, it chooses to do. In my particular case, I happened to be sitting at home one day after I'd retired from the uh, from the RAF, and uh, the RAF's personnel director phoned me at home and said, I have this little job that you might be interested in, and <laughs> explained what it was. And I said, Council. that sounds like fun. Uh, so fun I, I, I put my, my name in the hat.
1: And it's wow. not a full-time job, is it? I think we've had a few people asking, you know, what's the, how many hours do you do? It's not a full-time job. It's sort of hours no, no. Off, it's not a
2: full-time it? job. It's uh, we 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 turn up solely for events. Uh, we will do normally. There's something of the order about uh, twenty-five to thirty investitures a year, and we need four for each one. Uh, although it's three at the moment, uh, so you, we'll probably do somewhere around eight or ten of those in a year three garden parties, diplomatic reception uh, in the autumn and one or two other events. So um, it's not exactly taxing. It's just a lovely thing to be part of. Mm. Uh, And I particularly love the investitures because everybody's dressed up to the nines. Everybody's having a great day. Mm. People are getting uh, awards for having done, quite quite honestly, amazing things. Um, I was talking to... A couple uh, a few weeks ago uh, who had both won the MBE and when I asked them what they'd got it for they told me they'd been fostering children for 50 years.
1: Wow. I mean wow.
2: personally I'd have given them a knighthood but uh, <laughs> it's not within my gift to do that but that that's that's the kind of thing that, that we uh, we get there. Yeah, i just she's chatting she's... to some of the very ordinary unassuming people who've done extraordinary things. It's it's hugely uplifting um And it's it's the best of who we are as a nation, I believe. So I, we, sh- I love we it. should
1: point out that it's not just celebrities who do this, you know, who, who get these awards. They're obviously the ones that usually get the, the headlines and and the press article or the press inches. But it, the majority, the vast majority, are everyday folk, aren't they, who've done something
2: amazing? That, that's quite in right. In, in fact, the major, the vast majority of the people who go through are are, are just ordinary people who've done extraordinary things.
1: Mm.
0: And you seem as cool as a cucumber, but do you get nervous? I mean, especially the funeral, being part of that. You know, how did you feel in the morning when you were getting ready to go?
2: Uh, I suppose a little bit nervous because one one doesn't make want to make a hash of it. Um, but when you're when you're meeting people, um, when it comes down to it, we're all the same. Yeah. We may have different jobs, different levels of responsibility, or it whatever, whatever it might be. But at, uh, at its most basic, we are all the same.
0: Oh, Richard, I think I love you. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Hands off, Emily, he's taken. <laughs> you Oops. are so sweet, honestly. <laughs> um, we've had a great, actually really good question from um, someone with the same name as me, Alexandra, who says, what's the biggest challenge doing this job?
2: What's the biggest challenge? Um, I have to say, it's not exactly a challenging job. Um, the, you the have invest- told me one process. thing
1: that you found hard, which is sometimes standing for, for hours on end. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we,
2: but investitures, if if one is out the front as the sort of guide for the individual who's about literally you know, a few paces away from uh, from whichever of the uh, the royals is is uh, handing out the um, the awards on the day, if you're in that position, you stand to attention for. Well, I have done an hour and forty-seven minutes, and felt every moment of it. And uh, as you know, normally with advancing years, that becomes more difficult. Um, So that—that's about the only challenge, really, is just standing still for uh, for that length of period. Mm. Well, uh, the challenge actually is moving afterwards. Yeah, yeah,
0: (laughs) can imagine. And um we've had a question regarding your medals. Um oh, yeah. you know uh, it was lovely to see you in your uniform and I think uh, it's it's got a bit of attention. And in, in terms of your Steady medals. On, Emily. You... <laughs> Shut <laughs> up Alex. Well, I say I love you. I mean in like you know really kind of cuddly way. <laughs> um yeah, could you tell us a little bit about the the medals that you have um that you have been given and why?
2: Uh, yes. I mean, the first medal I, I was awarded was the um, General Service Medal for Northern Ireland. Um, I, I spent some time, quite a lot of time actually, in there in the, the late 70s, early 80s. So I have the Northern Ireland General Service Medal uh, with a bar to it because I went back two or three times. Um, I have a, I thing called the Accumulated Campaign Service Medal, which is uh, awarded for a uh, sort of aggregate of being in the wrong place at the wrong time for relatively short periods. Um, so most of that was Northern Ireland, but a few other other places that uh, that I've, I've been over time: Kosovo and one or two odds and ends, but not long enough to to win the whatever the medal was for for the particular campaign. Um, then the other two, uh, actually of the main group, are uh, the Queen's um, Golden Jubilee and the Platinum Jubilee. Um, but I also have—I'm lucky enough to have won the um, um, Commander of the British Empire, the CBE. So I, for that, I have a, a neck decoration. It's a—it's a pale blue cross, which uh, you might have been able to see me wearing on on that particular day. Gosh, but, uh, nothing particularly outstanding.
0: Well, I don't know about that. I mean, it makes the blue badge seem a little bit <laughs> pathetic, especially <laughs> <laughs> because ours are a bit chipped. My as well. blue badge. <laughs>
1: Um, mm. now we've got had one question. I don't know if you're gonna be able to answer this um because it's a, probably a bit like us answering who your favorite child is, although I think i you, you'd probably answer that one as well. um who's your favorite royal, and are most of them nice? Mm.
2: My experience is that all of them have been nice. good answer uh, richard and i and I don't have a favorite
1: <laughs> <laughs> diplomatic to the end, yeah, very diplomatic. <laughs> And you, yeah, well, a, you said The night in you, the
2: tower is pretty cold at this time of year. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> don't we know?
0: <laughs> and so you you might possibly be involved in the coronation next year.
2: I would like to think so. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I'm moderately certain that um, we we gentlemen ushers will be required for for that. At least at least I hope so, um, because it would be nice to to finish having completed the um, <laughs> the full panoply of of events so uh, yes i'd like to think we will be involved
1: amazing is there anything yeah. else em that you think we've we've uh forgotten to I ask think we've covered most you know? of
0: it to be honest um how to but
1: i'd like to ask when i mean
0: maybe you didn't watch it back i don't know but you know when uh you were on tv alex was taking pictures left right and center and <laughs> you know, sending them on how do you feel when you see yourself is it just like oh you know it's it's just a job or as you say you know you see everybody in the same level or i don't know how how did you feel when the photos came out of you and joe biden
2: i mean it's nice to have a a picture for posterity um Mm. but actually when you're when you're doing that job you're so busy you're not thinking about you know where cameras might be or or whatever's going on so uh it, it was just a privilege to be a part of it. Um, I thoroughly enjoyed it and uh, and I have a couple of pictures to prove I was there.
1: Yeah, we've got, and we've <laughs> quite got quite a few. I'm gonna
2: tell my grandchildren.
1: And we've actually got we've got um pictures of dad with the queen in the downstairs loo, haven't we? So uh We have.
2: She was kind of to come and join <laughs> us for a formal photograph a couple of years ago.
1: Fantastic. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Dad. Um yes, pleasure. Real, real yeah. privilege to to get you on the podcast. Um, yeah, thank you so much for coming and chatting, yeah, um, really and answering great. all the questions.
0: Yeah, I just can't believe it's your
1: dad. Well, I mean, I don't
0: mean that in like a horrible way to you. I just, it's. it's I, like, I am actually her dad. Because yeah. <laughs> 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 you, you know, you keep it keep it on the down low, really, Alex. You know. Well, yeah, and, and it's so does, it's so amazing. Dad, so. It's it's really special. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, it's well. lovely to have met you, Richard.
2: Likewise, Emily. Nice to uh, nice to put a face to the name.
1: And next yeah. time we'll be in
2: person, we'll take you for a beer. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> right on. Okay. Thanks
1: so much. Thank Bye. you. Okay.
2: Bye. Cheers. Bye.
1: So there you go. That was it. What a man. What a man.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Richard Lacey. No, that was lovely. It was a oh, real treat It's, to have it's him funny because
1: on. one of my best friends, uh, Edith, she she's known my dad for years we were at university together uh, me and ed and um because my dad was always known in the um in the raf as dick because richard dick and so dick Lacey. so she has always called him dick lacy international man of mystery oh it's like dick tracy so uh <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> so that's yeah, who yeah. we've always, that's that's we've always fantastic. Of. So there you go international man of mystery on the podcast on the podcast well, I hope that's answered all your questions. I think we got through everything. Uh, we, we were wildly checking all the things that everyone had asked, but there was yeah, quite hopefully. a lot of repeats, quite a few. In so, thank you very much for those who got involved. But I hope that um, that answers all your questions about a, a very unique job, which um, yeah, he uh, he's been doing for a few years now, and it's yeah, it's, it's a real treat. So there we go. Mm, and you know, we might have him on again after the coronation next year. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're able to tell us anything new, but yeah, you <laughs> can at least watch yeah. out for him in the coronation. Yeah, uh, yeah. If he does that. So, before we mm. head into the body of the podcast, uh, mm. we have a couple of podcast pedestals to wrap up, don't we?
0: We do, because um, I completely forgot to, <laughs> to put them up. <laughs> so, we're two behind. Um, and I think actually, I accidentally forgot to put one up on the stories and just put it up on the post. Yes. So, if you were missing the. The um the poll for Peter the Wild Boy it was on the post and not the story. (laughs) (laughs) That's
1: going really well as well.
0: But we did get a couple of votes on the post, so
1: we're we're running with that. We did, and you've already looked at it, so you know that that one (laughs) it was equal. It was even, Stevens neck and neck, neck and neck. And the options were retiring, retiring out to the country. Uh, And what was your That was my pick. What was your pick? My pick was the, um, you know, if lost, please
0: uh, contact us.
1: Yeah, you know, it just notes. it
0: showed that people were just thinking of him and people were worried for him. Yeah.
1: Um. Yeah. And so even Stevens, actually, I think I think that's probably right because I think they're both really lovely bits of the story, and mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah, made made sense. Um. So there we go. Yeah. So that means that we are currently with that,
0: um, eighteen sixteen.
1: I'm still in the lead.
0: I'm still in the I'm lead. The lead. Living, living the
1: dream. Living the yeah. dream. But well, we've got one more. We have. So um, from last week's episode, so last week's episode, we were talking, or you were talking, about the Soho cholera epidemic and the legendary Jon Snow. Not that oh. one. The other one. Yeah. Uh, so the options were, my my pick was the woman in Hampstead, who was the sort of outlier case where you couldn't quite figure out what was going on um, because We had this cholera up in Hampstead until they figured out that she got her her water from the pump on Broad Street. And that was kind of key to to cracking the whole thing. And what was your your pick?
0: So I went for Broad Street itself. It just blew my mind that so many people um, died and got uh, really ill on that one street in just a couple of days. It's now Broadwick Street. But um, yeah, so I, I went for the street itself.
1: Yeah, just sort of showing how many people lived in that one uh, that one area. Amazing, really. Well, um, it's sixty-seven percent to thirty-three percent. So it's quite a quite a broad split this week. Uh, what do you reckon? How are you feeling? You feeling? I'm you not like gonna lie.
0: Of... I'm looking at it. Oh, you're not, Emily. <laughs>
1: I am because cheaty, I just
0: kind of cheaty. I just <laughs> remind myself what the options were, so I I just naturally my finger just like slid up the phone. Of course it did, of oh, course it did. Damn
1: it. Well, it's gone my way. <laughs> oh.
0: So God, what's that? Nineteen sixteen. Nineteen sixteen,
1: yeah. And in fact, it's, it now. goes even more my way if you take the answers from the post as well. But I don't want to rub that in too much.
0: Oh really? <laughs> yes. What sorry. You look at that. <laughs>
1: but the Hampstead lady oh, wins it. Wins it for uh, for last oh, week.
0: Well, one. understandably so. Yeah. Well quite, done. Well bit.
1: done. <laughs> so this, this week, week. Right. What are we what, going? What we doing? What happened with the wheel? The wheel landed. Oh, where did it land? Was it Russell Square? It was Russell Square. Yeah. Uh, which and, the last time it landed there, we talked about the. Um, Russell Hotel, didn't we? Which was the has the Lucky George sculpture. Uh, we did. We've also
0: been around the corner as well because we spoke about, or you spoke about um, Thomas Coram.
1: Mm, yeah, I did. That's not. Too That's far, not away. far. Um, and actually, with the Tom- Thomas Coram, um, which was all to do with the Foundling Hospital and abandoned babies, mm. uh, we are still in the realm of childhood for this week uh, because we're talking about Great Ormond Street Hospital, known as Gosh uh do you know anything about the hospital what it's all what's all about and i know a
0: little bit about it i know the the kind of patients that they look after um there's a nice story um connected to a certain peter pan writer um (laughs) yes yes, i know a little bit
1: yeah so this is the it's it's Great Ormond Street Hospital is a really interesting institution. It is um, the well, it was it was created in 1852, so it, it goes back. You know, it's it's got some some pretty uh, decent heritage. And um, it, when it first opened, it was the first children's hospital in the English speaking world. So really, uh, you know, wow. groundbreaking. And the thing is, back in the um, 1800s, they didn't really. I mean, we, we've of course we've all seen. Um, The movies where you put put kids up uh, chimneys and and send them out to work and all this sort of thing. And, you know, we're all familiar with uh, Oliver Twist and The Artful Dodger and all of that. So kids didn't, if you were poor or um, well, anything really, kids weren't really taken seriously in the way that they are today. And it was very much like if what was good for an adult was good for a kid, but much, much more of the emphasis was put on adults and adult care and and you just sort of made it to adulthood. And it might just be, you know, one of the facts that children died, uh, the the infant mortality or child mortality was a lot higher. So maybe people just didn't put all their kind of eggs in one basket, I guess. Mm -hmm. But in the middle of the 1800s, this place uh, opened up as the first children's hospital um, ever. And it was opened up by a guy called Dr. Charles West. And when it opened, it had just 10 beds. So it offered the very first dedicated inpatient care um, to children. So this is a really, really important uh, building. And Charles West, who was the founder, he believed that what was good for an adult wasn't necessarily the right thing for a child and that, and that six children needed their own different form of care and so that's why he set this place up and it was the only one and um uh for the very first time children had somewhere that they could go to get uh it was relatively basic um medical uh, supervision medical attention um but they could also you know they had a roof over their heads and they were given uh crucially you know food and and back in the day, especially if children were very poor, that could lead to other illnesses as well. So it's it, it, it was a place that was specifically to help kind of look after all the different things that, that uh, went along with childhood illnesses. And ever since it has been created, it has continued to uh, sort of do world first in all sorts of things in surgery in in the buildings that they're creating in in research um and it's also a, one of the places one of the well medical institutions that has some of the biggest celebrity support they have a ramp sheet on their website of just tons and tons of celebs who support great ormond street hospital mm. and it is kind of the name in children's care even today um, when it first opened it um it became really in, in very quickly pretty important and gradually over the years a whole variety of different people came and um, nursed there, there were doctors there um, who were all doing lots of research and changing things for children. There was one guy in particular called uh, Sir Thomas Smith and he was around when the hospital was founded as well. Um, he wasn't the founder but he was one of the first people to work there and he was particularly fast and very very skilled um, and he was one of the people who really started to kind of think a little bit about uh, illnesses that that were particularly prevalent in children, or things that could stop them from surviving, basically. And one of the things he specialised in was cleft palate surgery, mm. and he invented um, a, a, a contraption for um, giving being able to give chloroform to the patient mm. while an operation is or is underway. So what that allowed him to do was then to treat children who were younger and younger. And so with cleft palate, of course, that's something that you have to get onto pretty quickly. Mm. Um, and so that was something that, that really happened. And the, the hospital just went on and carried on breaking boundaries. They, um, they pioneered the first heart and lung bypass machine for children, wow. which completely changed um, mm. heart surgery. It is now the largest centre for child heart surgery in the UK oh, um, and one of the largest centres for heart transplants in the world as well. Mm. Um, they have done, since they started with doing heart transplants, they've done over 500 heart and or lung transplants. Oh, wow. So, and there's a, it's quite amazing the, the, the number of people who have been involved in the development of the, of the hospital. There's one person um, who's an author who is linked to the hospital. And it's not the author you're thinking. You're thinking, you mentioned uh, the author of Peter Pan, J.M. Barry, And we're going to come on to him later. But there's another author who is linked to um, Great Ormond Street Hospital. This author was living in New York for a while um in 1960 his four-month-old son was hit by a new york taxi and suffered a really awful uh brain injury with you know fractures and all kinds of things <laughs> his son survived um but developed um a thing called secondary hydrocephalus which is um as i understand it and i'm, I'm not oh, fairly obviously not a doctor it's where the brain swells and it's fluid on the brain and yeah. um he was stabilised by being given this, uh, this shunt that was put put in, is that implanted. Um, but the problem with that was that it kept getting um, obstructed by, you know, bits of stuff, debris, all kinds of things that would uh, sort of clog up the valve, and then it would kind of cause secondary problems. And so this author, when he came back to the UK with his son and with his family, uh, decided he was going to start trying to find a. A solution to this and he got together with um, a guy called stanley wade who was interestingly a toy maker and the reason he did that is because stanley wade as a toy maker made really small pumps he did loads of um model airplanes and as that he created these tiny little hydraulic pumps and so our author who i still haven't mentioned yet went to him I said, look, this this has happened to my son. This is an issue that needs sorting in this form of valve that he's got, this this shunt that he's got. Let's Mm. figure it out. And so they Mm. went over um, to uh, a chap who was working at Great Ormond Street, a guy called Kenneth Till. And the three of them together developed a new device uh, which would then solve the problems that his son was having. And this author was none other than Roald Dahl.
0: No. So
1: Roald Dahl was involved in creating this incredible um, new pump for this for, for this for hydrocephaly, which is a really dangerous um, condition that can be had because his son had it. A oh personal my tragedy. Oh,
0: me. And uh, so the guy, what was the guy's name who created these little pumps, created these little toys?
1: Stanley Wade. Wow. Yeah, so the three of them together... We're like kind of right. What's the issue? What do we need to do? How do we do it? And then they all brought to bear their, you know, bits of well, personal history or um, oh my gosh, skills really. That's just jumped, that...
0: made Roald old jump off the page for me because you know there are some authors <laughs> where you don't know much about, but you you know you you read their work and yeah. uh, I don't know. There's they're no more than the work, but yeah. that has just leaped him into a different realm. Wow. Yeah.
1: What an incredible thing to do, and I mean, what, mm. what an absolute! You know, when you think of Roald Dahl, you just think of of, of I say just, but you know, novels, incredible novels, amazingly, you oh, know, that we BFG, grew up with. But, yeah, yeah. but they, you know, even more, he he helped in life saving um, developments for 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 children's health. I mean, incredible, fantastic. Yeah. So to kind of carry on a little bit with Great Ormond Street. Um, the the hospital was the very first place that uh, started the trials of the rubella vaccine uh, in 1967 and within a year they'd um, vaccinated over 100 children and three years later Due to the, the the tests that had taken place at Great Ormond Street, the immunisation was rolled out countrywide. So again, very much at the forefront of developments, and the first bone marrow transplant uh, was was also um done here in 1979. They um did the very first operation to transplant cells uh, into the bone marrow of a patient with uh, a severe disease, and I don't know what what disease it was. And it was successful, and this this young chap who was called Andrew Williams, um, who I understand is still alive and kicking today, um, was the recipient of that. And you know all of that. So, and they they keep going with with more things in the um, in the two thousands. They've created a new um, heart valve for children who have uh, a hole in the heart, and there's all sorts of things. They're constantly mm. at the forefront of development for for children's health. So it's a really amazing place. But you did mention the story of J.M. Barry. And there is a really, really big part of Great Ormond Street that is a story that not a lot of people know, but it is really interesting. So, J.M. Barry, we know as the author of Peter Pan. And in theory, we don't really, you know, there's not any major link between J.M. Barry and Great Ormond Street Hospital. He was never a patient there. He didn't, as far as we're aware, have any family members that were patients there um and in fact he he wasn't even from london he was born in scotland and he had well he was one of 10 children in fact i think he was the penultimate of 10 children and he that what happened is when he was in his when he was very small his um older brother david when he was 14 uh was really badly injured in an accident and he died shortly after that and when J M Barry was really tiny. this is when his brother died. and so the first few years of his life were really overshadowed by his family's loss of his older brother. And one of the things that his mother really found comforting is the thought that her son David, who she obviously adored, uh, would be young forever. Mm. Now this rings a little bell because while she's finding comfort, JM. Barry is finding inspiration
0: yes <laughs> and let he, me get my pen
1: yes and it does it does sound as well that he really uh, was very found it very hard to deal with this especially his you know really young years uh, to deal with this that his mother had lost this son because he well the sounds of it he tried to kind of be david and tried to almost you know um i guess sort of compensate for him replace mm. him i suppose mm. so really really tough um, so we fast forward to him leaving university and he comes down to London and he's doing his you know, the classic classic sort of starving actor thing or starving artist thing of um, writing and, and theatre and all this sort of stuff. And the very first place he stayed in London was right behind Great Ormond Street Hospital in a street called Grenville Street. And the house that he stayed in. Um, it was a beautiful house and it became the inspiration for the family home of the Darling family, who are the the family, um, the major family in the mm. the books of Peter Pan. Now, he moved around London a little bit and there is um, a house to the north of Kensington Gardens in Hyde Park that has a blue plaque on it with J.M. Barry's name. And that's sort of where he ended up living. And in Kensington Gardens in 1897, he met the three oldest boys of a family called the Llewellyn Davis uh, family. Uh, There was George, who was five, Jack, who was four, and Peter, who was still a baby. Um, Later on, there were two more boys who came along as well, and he developed uh, a really, really strong friendship with the kids and their parents, who were both called Sylvia and Arthur. So we've got this lovely little family unit. And it was these boys who provided the inspiration for Peter Pan, along with the other things, his brother having died when he was really young and the home that he he lived in when he first moved to London. And he spent a lot of time with the boys and he later wrote to them, he said, I made Peter by rubbing the five of you violently together as savages with two sticks produce a flame. That is all Peter is, the spark I got from you. (gasps) Oh, I love that. It's rather lovely. Yeah. And yeah. the first time we see Peter Pan is actually not in his own story. It's in um, a book that uh, Barry published in 1902 called The Little White Bird. Um, and the chapter is entitled Peter Pan in Kensington Gardens. And it tells the story of how uh, Peter Pan, I'm sure everyone's familiar with the story, um, ends up. Uh, coming into Kensington Gardens he's he loses his family and he learns to fly the um uh, the, the fairies come and basically give him you know um, sprinkle fairy dust and he is able to fly and it's from that book that he then wrote the stage play of Peter Pan mm. and the original stage play took place in 1904 so well over 100 years ago now at the Duke of York's theatre and it was a smash hit Mm. absolute smash hit so he didn't write the book he wrote this little chapter in a book and then wrote the stage play from it and after it was a hit in london his producer took it to broadway and again it was a hit there as well and one of the things they did is they in the early 20th century it was quite common for um boys to play women's roles you know that was always a historical thing um and that so that's kind of where we get this kind of pantomime tradition from really of you know, and and gender swapping, really. Mm. And they never showed Tinkerbell on stage. What they did was a little a light that would flit around the stage and there'd be bells that would sort of tinkle as they went across, as, you know, the fairy was supposed to fly across. Oh, how delightful. Amazing. Um, and in fact, what they did is, um, in the original production, they put the name of an actress, Jane Wren, um, as playing Tinkerbell. Now, of course, there's nobody playing Tinkerbell because it wasn't a, a physical role. It was just the the kind of the lights. And um clearly we know how the tax office uh, find the correct people. They just look through the theatre programmes because the tax office sent a tax demand to Miss Jane Wren, who of course never no. existed. Yep. Oh, God. Absolutely
0: brilliant.
1: Hilarious. <laughs> now, what then happened is, is Peter Pan became very, very popular and spread, you know... Th- across the West End, Broadway and all that kind of thing. And, and people played you know certain roles for years on end. And it was really, um, you know, everyone loved to see it. People would fly and it was just absolutely gorgeous. And eventually they they said after about oh, um, six or seven years, they said, I think you should sort of write it now. So it then became, um, well, he, he novelised it essentially. And in 1911, it was published, but not called Peter Pan. It was called Peter and Wendy. And it was an instant bestseller and has, been in print ever since so for over 100 years God, well, I didn't know that it was a
0: play before a book
1: mm. yeah yeah how fascinating yeah. well sort of chapter of a book then a play yeah and then and then a book
0: and then yeah. the, the realized book wow yeah
1: and one of the things is that so this little family that he'd met the Llewellyn Davis family um both of their parents, Sylvia and Arthur, died really quite young when the boys were still young as well. And um, Jay and Barry, even though he'd been married and had um, been divorced as well, uh, became their guardian and he brought them up as his own children. And... This is where you know, having lived with these boys and seen their sort of this their magic. mean you think about the lost boys in Peter Pan, don't you? And how it's this mm. kind of scrappy ragtag group of boys who are all young and there's no nobody there looking out for them, and they're just getting along and they're they're making it work. And that's that's his sort of you know that was his inspiration really. Mm. Now where does this come linking into Great Ormond Street? Well, Jan Barry because he had lived there just lived just behind it when he'd moved in and possibly because of this impact of his brother dying so young he had been supporting uh, Great Ormond Street for quite a number of years and in 1929 um, they came to him and they said look you've been supporting for ages and we're really appreciative and you have a a, you know a a presence you have a a platform Um, you've written this amazing play, this famous play which has become a famous book and everyone knows who you are we need to, to 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 buy some land for the hospital so that we can build a new wing. We would like you to sit on the committee uh, that is overseeing this. And Jane Barry, he thought it over and he he kind of, he wasn't sure about it. And in the end, he said, "It's that's not the right thing for me. I will, I'm hoping that I will be able to find another way to help. And so what he decided to do, and this was a complete surprise to everybody up on the board, just two months later, Barry donated all of the rights for Peter Pan to Great Ormond Street Hospital, mm. completely, in its entirety, meaning that any time a play is put on, of Peter Pan, you, you know, with all of these things, you have to get the rights to do it. Uh, with any play, any musical, whatever, um, also reprints of books, reprints of scripts, all of that requires uh, rights, and you pay for, for that privilege to do that. So all of that money from henceforth was going to go to Great Ormond Street Hospital. And later that year, he was invited to a dinner at the Guild Hall. And they said, you know, because it was such a surprise to them. And they said, why mm. did you do this? What was your thinking behind him? And he said, at one time, Peter Pan was an invalid in the hospital and it was he who put me up to the little thing I did. Oh, God, so where geez. that came from. Barry. I know. Because oh, he doesn't mention Peter Pan is is a... Uh, a patient in the book. Mm. So just in mm. his head, it's that's the link he's made, mm. which is so lovely. So now, lovely. when he died in 1937, his will confirmed this. Uh, you know, they were worried that when he died that it would sort of be mm. null and void, yeah. uh, but no, um, it was confirmed. And the what that did is it, it meant that the... Hospital was then able to receive royalties every single time a production mm. of the play was on. And if you think about the number of Hollywood movies that oh have done God, Peter yeah. Pan in a variety of shapes Plenty and forms. different
0: adaptations and Tons. links to it, yeah.
1: All of that, every time that happens, there is money coming into the hospital. Wow, it's just so
0: fabulous, isn't it? Yeah.
1: And there's one question that will never be answered. And that question is, how much has been raised Mm. for the hospital since he dedicated the rights to them? And the answer is, we don't know. Mm. Because one of the things that the stipulation of it was that the amount raised for the hospital from Peter Pan would never be revealed to the public. And Great Ormond Street Hospital has honoured that Mm. entirely. So we have never known, we will never know as well. And very shortly after he, he made that um. Donation. They uh they they got a a group, well the cast of the London production of Peter Pan to come into the hospital and and play some of the scenes in there, and that's been something that's been happening ever since. Oh, brilliant! Yeah. Now, what normally happens is that after a certain amount of time, and I think it's usually a hundred years, but I think it might vary a little bit. Things go out of copyright, mm-hmm. so after a certain period of time, they're just then open copyright. You can do with them what you like. However. In 1988, the House of Lords decided to make an exception for this. And they voted overwhelmingly for a special clause in an act. And the act is the UK's Copyright Designs and Patents Act. Now, it sounds very dry and very boring. But what it was is that that amendment allowed the hospital to keep the right to the royalties in perpetuity, so forever.
0: Wow,
1: <laughs> because otherwise, after hundred years, it would have just yeah. you know petered out, and that would have been it. But no, yeah. they've changed literally it. So for that, literally Peter Pan out. Yeah. So for Peter Pan, that will always be there, and the hospital will always receive the uh, the proceeds. And so throughout the hospital, if you ever go there, there are some cute little um, courtyards and bits and pieces throughout the hospital. You can find memorials, you can find statues of Peter Pan, mm. all sorts of amazing amazing bits uh, in there um to him because it's, you know, it's such a big part of them. And I just think it's such a lovely thing. So this incredible hospital, which has been at the forefront of pediatric care and developments and all that kind of thing, has been helped in no small part and continues to be helped by this amazing gift from JM Barry.
0: Oh, it's just made me smile throughout. It's <laughs> such a such an uplifting story. It's so lovely, oh, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, really, really nice.
1: So that's uh, yeah, that's the story of Great Ormond Street and Peter Pan. And uh, you know, one of the things we we will always know from Peter Pan is the directions to Neverland. Can you remember?
0: Oh, you're testing me now.
1: <laughs> Second star to the right, and straight on till morning. Oh yes, of course. <laughs> Come on, Wendy, let's go. <laughs> so there oh, we go.
0: How wonderful. Oh, gosh, it reminds <laughs> me, actually, I was doing um, like some kind of uh, virtual online sketching. And the thing was, you know, let just let me know what you want me to draw and I'll draw it. And yeah. one of this, this woman got on and she said, I want you to draw all the characters of Peter Pan flying into the sky.
1: And I was casual.
0: trying for the love of me to try and remember all of the characters. Um, I think I missed out a couple, but.
1: But, yeah. there's quite a lot of characters there's to be quite fair.
0: there's quite a few
1: once you add in all the the lost boys and all the baddies and yeah yeah all that yeah, kind of stuff true. oh
0: god definitely missed out quite a few of them <laughs> um but that was so lovely alex really really nice it's Thank a you. sweet story isn't it and it's i just very love sweet story that very the two uplifting. things
1: are, are so um you know they're such big things in their own right but that they, they come together it's yeah. just this glorious kind of mix of of yeah loveliness yeah absolutely
0: podcast pedestal well podcast pedestal seems a bit obvious really
1: <laughs> but what are you gonna go for i mean is it is it too of ob- i is it too of ob- i mean should we have an embargo on the giving the 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 copyright to the hospital because that's quite an obvious thing isn't it well i i know what i'm going
0: for and i'm not i'm not going You're for going that. to roll dial aren't you Well, I'll I'll tell you in a
1: minute. You go first. Okay. Um, Okay. I'm... Can I go for it? I don't know. It feels like like quite a big one, doesn't it? I think actually, let's... Okay, so if we're embargoing him giving the rights to the hospital, because I think that's that's quite a big one. I'm going to go for the House of Lords, giving it that special clause Mm. and making it... um, putting it in perpetuity that that mm. it can get the the royalty from Peter Pan. That's what Good I'm going to go
0: one. for. Good one. Because
1: I think that's quite an important bit. It, really, it, really, it extends proxy. that legacy from from jay and Barry and says, "Yep, you know what? We're actually going to change the rules for this because it's so important." Good one. Mm. What are you going for then? <laughs> I want to go for the Toy
0: Maker, the Toy Maker's uh-huh. pumps.
1: Toymaker's Pumps.
0: The Toymaker's Pumps.
1: I love it. Because, Stanley um, Wade and his little yeah, mini Yeah, because it must have been
0: quite interesting because he must have had like a little workhouse and he was producing these lovely little, you know, toys for children. And then suddenly he gets a knock on the door and, you know, gets involved in actually creating something that's not just for children uh, to yeah. play with, but for children to, you know, survive or kind of have a better life. So I think yeah the the toy maker's pumps
1: <laughs> can you imagine just being there in your workshop and picking up the phone or whatever and just being like yeah it's Roald Dahl just casual <laughs> yeah <gasps> amazing yeah mm. great one so Stanley Wade the toy maker and his tiny pumps uh, which makes him sound like he's got really small feet <laughs> <laughs> <It does. laughs> teeny pumps for the House um, of Lords um what would you say, elongating or extending extending um JM Barry's legacy of of royalties. Those are your options this week, gang. So you can vote on that in four weeks when Emily remembers to put it on Instagram.
0: (laughs) Exactly, yeah. (laughs) I know I will remember. I'm actually gonna I'm gonna well I'm gonna set a reminder to actually do it tomorrow. (laughs) She
1: says (laughs) Cool. Um, There we go. So oh actually before we get on to the Wheel of Destiny. I, we need to say a, a bit of a shout out to Ollie, our friend from Discover Real London, who does the Black Cab Tours, who did our Christmas. Oh, our Christmas. A Christmas yeah. one, who took us yeah, around yeah, in the cabs. Absolutely yeah. uh, absolute legend that he is. He messaged me today and went, I've just started listening avidly to your podcast he's like i can't get
0: enough <laughs> oh bless him i got um, a really lovely wave from him i was going through westminster oh. and i was um guiding the front of the coach and there was this taxi in front and there was just this man waving at the window and i was like is he waving like a mentalist? just drive for god's sake drive And then i
1: realized it was ollie and i was like oh, brilliant. oh, oh i love it when you see people around london that uh yeah <laughs> but, yeah. you know, it yeah. makes you look like you're really popular as well. Yeah, it's <laughs> yes. oh, we are high. <laughs> the Wheel of Destiny. Oh, right, so Wheel of Destiny time. Yes. Okay, I'm just going to go for it, as All usual. Right, give, it a, give it a go.
0: Ah, oh, now... I don't know if it is cheating, because I write oh, the different go. place names. And when I write a place name, I kind of know what I want if it lands
1: there. <laughs> You're changing the place names for the things that you want, aren't you, basically? Well, no, not
0: necessarily.
1: <laughs> go on then, what, what I you mean, got? we've got lots of run-of-the-mill places.
0: Yeah. But I, I mean, I put this one on about three weeks ago, actually. But okay. a Q. Q? Yes. Gardens? Well, I want to talk about Q Palace. Q, oh, Q
1: Palace, yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I'd like to talk about Kew Palace. Yeah. If I may.
1: You um, may. I'll allow I don't
0: think it. We've, t- we've spoken about the royal family or kind of links to the royal family, apart from obviously, you know, the obvious. Oh, for a while, no. <laughs> but,
1: but yes, so I'd like to talk about Kew Palace, please. Nice. And it's a bit of an unusual one, and not many people know about it. And...
0: No, so That's hopefully it'll be a nice one to put on people's radar because yeah. it certainly is forgotten about because it is dwarfed by the massive gardens that it lives in. But. Mm yeah that's what I'm gonna
1: talk about amazing cool Cool. well that's it for this week gang thank you all for coming and listening yeah thank you and thank you for Richard Lacey for coming on (laughs) he's a little legend in your eyes now isn't he the (laughs) international man of mystery there we go (laughs) well we'll see you all next week gang Um, in the meantime be safe be happy we'll see you then see you later Bye.
2: bye